0: I read about the town of Edmund, Virginia, and it has a hole in its city seal. There used to actually be a cross in that spot, and this was basically showing their religious heritage. But according to World Magazine, after losing a lawsuit which cost them nearly a quarter of a million dollars to defend, this aspect of Edmund's history was wiped from the record. And rather than replace the cross with something that was more politically correct, they decided they would just leave a hole there to represent the fact that there was an attempt to sanitize the present by altering the past. There are a lot of people today who are vehemently opposed to the cross. They see Jesus as a threat to their lifestyles, as a threat to their beliefs, their ambitions, and their freedom. So they're taking extreme measures to actually eradicate anything to do with the cross from our society. But what they're doing is they're actually creating a huge vacuum, and it's not being filled with anything else. The Apostle Paul wrote, I say this now with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, but their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. So, this is what the cross is the cross is a symbol of our past sins forgiven and our future hope in heaven. That's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ is. So, we shouldn't be surprised that we will have enemies of Christ today, because from the first time that Jesus arrived on the scene, he experienced enemies. When he was born, King Herod was trying to kill him. So he actually had all children under the age of two in Judea killed, trying to make certain that he took out the, this Messiah, this Savior. When Jesus began his ministry, the people in his hometown of Nazareth wanted to throw him off a cliff. Now, I haven't received that type of reaction on Prince Edward Island where I grew up, but they've kind of forgotten me. One, my dad, I'll start at the beginning. My grandfather married, and his brother married sisters. So they farmed together on the Nicholson farm. So dad was an only child, but there were seven in the other family. And he looked upon them as brothers and sisters, but they were actually double first cousins. So one of those double first cousins died in 1990, and dad and my brother James and I kind of got tagged on to the end of the receiving line at the visiting hours at the funeral home. And as people would come through, they would say, hello, Harold, to my dad, hello, James, to my brother. And then they'd look at me, who are you? Well, I'm Harold's oldest son. Didn't know Harold had another son. And then my cousin, his my uncle's not my uncle officially, but he she died a year later and we're in the same situation and the people are coming through. So this time I would re- introduce myself as James's older brother. Didn't know James had an older brother. So people in your hometown can be uh, tough on you as well. So then Jesus, not only did the people in his hometown try to kill him, after 300 days, and three and a half years actually, of intense opposition, the religious leaders finally succeeded in nailing him to the cross. So we wonder, why was Jesus hated so much? Why were his enemies that determined to get rid of him? Why were they so elated with the punishment that he was receiving? And why did they want to gloat over the fact that he was experiencing this punishment? So we're going to look at the cross this morning, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of the enemies of Jesus, and we're going to try to understand what was going on in their minds. And this is important because we live in the real world, and if we live a genuine Christian life in that world, we're going to discover that there is opposition as well. So the Bible gives a very clear reason for the animosity of the religious leaders, They were envious of Jesus. The Bible says that Pilate knew it was out of envy that they wanted to actually place him on that cross. So Jesus posed a definite threat to the religious establishment of that day. When Jesus came on the scene, all of a sudden he became popular. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they were the ones who were the respected rulers Of religion in Palestine, but now they were going to Jesus for that type of thing. People used to come to them for advice. They were going to Jesus for advice. People looked to them for teaching, and when this 30-year-old carpenter comes on the scene, his teaching was so far beyond theirs that theirs was superficial, and nobody wanted to hear their teaching. And he was performing spectacular miracles, and they couldn't do any of that. They couldn't stop this popularity that he was gaining. And then Jesus had a special anointing from the Holy Spirit, which gave him this extra charisma that they lacked because they lacked spirituality. So the crowds began leaving them and following Jesus. They were raving about Jesus. They were idolizing Jesus. And the religious leaders became jealous over that. It's just like when you have a newborn in the house and there's a three-year-old there. That three-year-old is going to be jealous because they're no longer the center of attention in that home. So when my wife and Pat and I were having our second child, we read all the books and the books said, give gifts to that older child. Make them feel special so that they won't feel like they've been pushed aside. So we did that. And our daughter Brittany had this Bernie, the bendable bunny, for years after that. That was her big gift to make her not feel jealous. So these religious leaders, they were doing their best to make Jesus look bad by asking him tricky questions. And they figured the harder the questions, the tougher it's going to be on Jesus. But it ended up being the harder the questions, the more impressive were Jesus' answers and the more that the people were worshiping Jesus. So they would ask, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? And then Jesus would pick up a coin and he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And then they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that we should stone her. What do you say we should do, Jesus? And Jesus said, go ahead and stone her, but let the one who throws that first stone be someone who is without sin. Luke 13, 17, this tells what happened after one of these encounters. When he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So the religious leaders, they're so frustrated. The harder they tried to make Jesus look bad, the better he looked. So Jesus even alienated them further by Being very truthful with them. And he talked about their spiritual condition just as it was. He called them hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them snakes. He called them whitewashed tombs. And he called them sons of hell. Now according to Dale Carnegie and his program about how to win friends and influence people, that's not how you do it. You don't tell people exactly how things are in their life. So they couldn't stand that, and then when he declares himself to be the Messiah, that's all they could take, and they started to plot to end his life from that moment on. If you're a genuine Christian in the world, there're going to be times when you'll have enemies. And I'm not talking about the enemies that you'll make when you make mistakes because there are going to be times when you have to ask for forgiveness because you've sinned against people. And I'm not talking about enemies that we have because of misunderstandings, because there are going to be false impressions and we need to have open dialogue. And I'm not talking about the enemies we sometimes have because we're obnoxious or maybe a little offensive. There are some times when we need to have tact and kindness. But there are times when if you live for Christ, you will be opposed. John 15. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as it loves its own. But I have chosen you out of the world, so you don't belong to it. That is why the world hates you. So there are times when those who oppose you, because they disagree with your theology, they'll say, you actually believe that God created the world? Because these people believe that we're here by evolutionary chance. And then they will say, you believe that the Bible is actually the Word of God? Because these people think that the Bible is full of myths, and they oppose it. And it's just amazing how more and more material is coming out to help us prove the validity of the Scriptures. And then people will say, you believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation? There are so many other ways being talked about out there in the world. C.S. Lewis observed that in any secular society, Christians will ultimately be treated as an enemy. Why? Because we maintain a dual loyalty which others misinterpret as disloyalty. And there are those who believe that one religion is as good as another, and they will feel that you have abandoned your heritage by leaving that faith. I read about one man who grew up in the Jewish faith, and he made a decision to become a Christian. So he invited his sister to attend his baptism. And surprisingly, she attended and was very supportive. And afterwards, she sincerely said, I hope you're a better Christian than you were a Jew. Now, it wasn't a dig. She was sincerely hoping he would be a better Christian. But that's not always the case. Sometimes when people convert to Jesus Christ or maybe come to another church... Their family feels as if they've abandoned their heritage. You've abandoned the teaching that we brought you up in. And they sincerely believe that that way was the only way. And now you go to a different church and their feelings are hurt. And you don't understand why they don't share your enthusiasm for your faith or why they criticize your church. In Luke 12, Jesus said, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. So people may consider you an enemy because they regard you as a competitor. And there are a couple of churches that use our building for things like baptisms because they don't have their own baptistry. And One of the leaders told me, we spoke to another church here in the area, and this is what we got as an answer to that request. Our deacons have a policy that we don't share our building with other churches that we think are in competition with us. And we think that Satan is our enemy. I had a request from a a church here in the area, and they were wanting to start dual services like we have, and they'd heard that we had dual services So one of their pastors phoned to ask me for some questions, and I gave them all my best information, how that worked for us, the things that we did in the early stages that didn't work. I wasn't going to say, oh, just good luck. But some religious leaders see other churches as competing for their members, and they are especially resentful and threatened by churches that grow. People may consider you an enemy because you pose a threat to their lifestyle, and you don't even have to say anything about their lifestyle. You being around them makes them feel guilty, and they don't like the transformation that has taken place in your life. And it feels as if it's an indictment against them. They don't want to stop doing drugs. They don't want to clean up their language. They don't want to stop that promiscuous behavior. So there'll be people who will attack you also for taking a stand on biblical issues. And it's amazing. They will talk about Christians not being tolerant about biblical issues, but then they are so intolerant in the way that they attack and their indictment of it. In Jesus' words, I want to read to you. He said, people will hate you, shut you out, insult you, and say you are evil because you follow the Son of Man. But when they do, you will be blessed. Be full of joy at that time, because you have a great reward in heaven. Their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. So he's basically saying, don't panic. You're going to have enemies, and I had them too. So just be ready for them. And the result of this increasing animosity toward Jesus was crucifixion. And the next passage that we read tells the religious leader's reaction just shortly after Jesus performed probably his greatest miracle, and that was raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And yes, he performed other raising from the dead, but these people had just died. Lazarus had been dead for four days. His sisters said, you know, his body probably stinketh by now in the King James translation. But in John 11... Then the leading priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the council, and they asked, What should we do? This man is doing many miracles. If we let him continue doing these things, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. One of the men there was Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And he said, You people know nothing. You don't realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Caiaphas did not think of this himself. As high priest that year, he was really prophesying that Jesus would die for their nation, and for God's scattered children, to bring them all together and make them one. But that day they started planning to kill Jesus. So then the religious leaders they started this huge right wing conspiracy. And two days before the Passover, it was their plan to get the chief priests and the teachers of the law all together and look for some sly way in which they could arrest Jesus. Now, they didn't want to inflame the crowd. They didn't want to do this in in front of great numbers of people because they were afraid that the people would riot. And several times you actually see this, how they're concerned about public opinion but then they got the break that they needed. And Judas Iscariot, one of the closest followers of Jesus, he came to this group and he said, look, I'm willing to give you Jesus. I will point him out to you. I know where he goes at night, away from the crowds, so you can go there, I'll identify him, you can arrest him, and it won't be in front of a big crowd of people. And these guys couldn't believe their luck, and they jumped at this opportunity to take that offer that Judas Iscariot had given. And then they took, went and arrested Jesus when nobody was around. They arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane and they dragged him before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court that they had. And they had to go and wake up the judge. And this is just like watching some type of detective show on TV. And they want to get a search warrant to go into a house late at night. And they have to wake the judge. And the judge comes out in his pajamas. And he's not very thrilled. But they do that. They wake up the high priest. And the thing with Jesus' enemies is that it was illegal for them to actually pass any resolutions at night. But these were desperate circumstances. And then the hasty trial, it was just a fiasco. They paid false witnesses to lie about Jesus, but the witnesses contradicted one another. And they couldn't get two witnesses to actually give the same reason. They couldn't get witnesses to come up with good enough reasons to say that Jesus should be killed. But then finally, two of them said, we heard Jesus say that if we tore down the temple he would build it up again in three days. And finally they thought, okay, we've got something. And Jesus did actually say that. But what he was talking about was his temple, his body. And he said, I'm going to be killed. And in three days, I will come back from the dead again. So they took him to the high priest. And the high priest was supposed to be neutral in judging this trial but he begins to put the pressure on Jesus to actually incriminate himself. So we pick up now in Mark 14, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now Matthew's gospel, in his account of this, he said, "I charge that you, because you are under oath to answer." And when the high priest charged that, the person couldn't refuse to tell the truth. They couldn't say, "I refuse to comment on grounds that may incriminate me." They had to speak. They had to give an answer. So Jesus said, "I am," and you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven and then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said why do we need other witnesses you have heard all his blaf- you have all heard his blasphemy what is your verdict guilty they all cried he deserves to die and now look at what these sophisticated judges do then some of them begin to spit at him and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists Prophesy to us, they jeered. Who just hit you? So they're pouring out three years of pent-up hatred and animosity toward Jesus. But then comes the most crucial step in their conspiracy, and that is to get a death sentence from the Romans. The Jews couldn't kill someone on their own. They didn't have permission to do that. They could only be granted that by the Roman authorities. So they dragged Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate demands to know what's going on. Why have you brought him here? What evil has he done? And you know what they said? They said, look, if he wasn't guilty of some capital offense, we wouldn't have brought him here in the first place. And Pilate looks at him, and he doesn't think there's anything wrong, but he decides, okay, I'll take him aside, and I will investigate on my own. And he did that. He interrogated Jesus, and he came back saying, I find no fault in this man. And the crowd yelled, crucify him. And Pilate said again, why? What evil has he done? And they said, if you don't execute him, you're no friend of Caesar's. Now, he understood what that meant. He was saying, if you don't do what we want you to do, then we're going to report you to the authorities. We're going to give you a poor public opinion, and you will lose your job. And Pilate, he was very sensitive to the public opinion polls, so he said, whatever. He washed his hands, and they led Jesus away to be crucified. And once they nailed Jesus to the cross, his enemies gloated over his torture. So look at Mark 15, 29. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. So this has to be really disturbing to Jesus' followers. It's one thing to be defeated by your enemy. It's even worse to have them gloat over it. And I experienced that in sporting events where we were losing badly, and the other team starts to gloat over it. And they'll start calling you names and that type of thing. I played hockey for the University of Prince Edward Island, and our Arch enemy was the University of Moncton. We played in the finals. And because we were from PEI, they thought this was something that they could really dig into us with. They called us potato. That was their big insult when they got ahead. You'd check a guy on the board, and he'd go, potato. (laughs) Didn't explain that it wasn't that tough. But we see the media all over things when a Christian slips up or when they do something horrible. There are people who are poised enemies of the cross and they just love it when the church looks bad or when a Christian stumbles in any way at all. When David had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet came to him and he said, David, I know that God will forgive you. But then he also said, you have given your enemies and god 's enemies an occasion to blaspheme now, there are a number of incentives as to why I keep an eye on my behavior, but the number one reason is i don 't want Jesus to look bad i don 't want to give his enemies an occasion to rejoice and it 's not just when a leader falls that that 's true with your life as well, and I challenge you to take your responsibility seriously as a member of this church, and to be determined to not give the enemies of Christ any opportunity to rejoice. As Paul said, walk worthy of the calling you have received so that the name of Jesus may be held in high honor. Now Jesus responds to their animosity with forgiveness. He showed remarkable restraint on the cross. They said, if you really are the Son of God, come down. And you know what? We've talked about it before, the fact that he could have called 10,000 angels to come and strike every one of his enemies dead and to take him down off the cross. Retaliate. That would be the human thing to do, right? Muhammad Ali, who was Cassius Clay before he became a boxer, said that when he was a little boy, his parents gave him a bike. And just a few days after he had that bike, someone stole it. So he was out there, he was trying to find his bike, and he came across a police officer. And the police officer said, well, what are you going to do when you find your bike? And Cassius Clay said, I don't know. And so the police officer took him to a gym and taught him how to box. And then this is what Muhammad Ali said later on. He said, I never did find that bike, but from that day on... Every time I got into a ring with an opponent, I looked at him and said, that's the guy that took my bike. And I had no trouble getting up for the battle. Human nature says to retaliate. But Jesus looked down at those people that had placed him on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And they really didn't know. They really didn't understand that he was God in the flesh. They didn't understand that Satan had come into Judas Iscariot, that Satan was using them as pawns. They didn't know that. They didn't know that Satan was working to bring Jesus to that cross. So Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, there are three lessons that I just want to briefly touch on here from Jesus' example about how to respond to those who are enemies of the cross. And lesson number one is speak the truth and do not compromise. When Jesus was put on trial, he was asked, Are you the Messiah? Now, he could have just shrunk back on that one, and, well, some people think that, some don't. And he could have rescued himself if he wanted to, but he didn't. He went ahead and told them exactly who he was. There are going to be some people who are enemies of the truth, and we might be tempted to water the truth down a little bit or to say something that's politically correct so that we don't alienate anybody. But the Bible says we are to speak the truth in love even when it hurts. Now, my initial interview was... Here in September of 1988, it was actually the second Saturday of that month, the elders of this church were together. But because the church had actually shrunk so much at that point, they were relying mostly on a church-building organization called Partners in Atlantic Canada Evangelism. So the executive from that board were also in on that meeting. And Peter Boyer, who is still one of our elders here, he started coming at me with questions to determine what my theology, my doctrine was. And it was one tough question after another. And I started thinking, maybe the guy wants me to waffle on this by the way he's asking that question, acting as a devil's advocate. Maybe he wants me to say, no, it doesn't matter what you believe, God's going to accept you anyway. But I stuck true to God's word and survived that interview and got the job and I'm still here today and I get asked to pray at secular gatherings and even way back in 1986 I was asked to pray at the official opening of a hockey arena and there was one time when I was asked to actually pray at an event and they said this to me they said there's going to be a diverse audience present here today so we don't want you to offend anybody Basically, what they were saying was, don't use the J word when you're praying. And so I prayed, and at the end of my prayer, I said, in the name of the Lion of Judah, amen. Now, most people never had a clue what that meant, but Jesus was the Lion of Judah. So I felt pretty smirk. You know, I thought, you know, I still got one in there, but then I realized I wimped out. So after that, when I'm invited to pray at a public thing like that, I tell them, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. I'm not going to preach in my prayer and try and convert people in my prayer, but I will pray in Jesus' name. And if you don't want me to do that, that's fine. My wife has plenty of things for me to do at home. (laughs) The second lesson is love your enemies and do not retaliate against them. So we need this badly for those times when people attack us because of our faith. 1 Peter 2, this is what you were called to do, because Christ suffered for you and gave you an example to follow. So you should do as he did. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, even though we are insulted, even though we are the object of false accusations, we're not to retaliate. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then the last lesson is consider the source and don't blame the people. But Jesus was able to pray, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, because he knew that the real adversary was Satan. He knew that Satan was behind all of this. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, Our fight is not against people on earth but against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world. So our real enemy isn't the producer in Hollywood, it's not the R-rated rapper, it's not the pornographer, it's not the drug dealer or the smuggler of illegal weapons. Our real enemy is the prince of darkness in this world. And the people that are being used by him need to be loved so that they will move away from being used by him to entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we attack those people that are being used by Satan, then we've lost our opportunity to bring them to know Jesus Christ. Our job is to communicate love to them, not retaliate against them, and to realize that the real enemy is Satan. But even the enemies of Satan couldn't resist the love of God that was displayed on that cross. Because about two months after this event, Peter's standing up before all the people, and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified was both Lord and Christ. And the people came to believe that. And they said, well, what do we do? There must be something that we need to do. And he said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ... And 3,000 responded that day. And that was recorded in Acts chapter 2. Then we go to Acts chapter 6, and we read that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased daily. And a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. So these were priests of the Jewish faith. They were coming to Jesus Christ in faith as well. Maybe there's a hole in the center of your life today. Maybe there's an emptiness that you just can't fill, and you've been trying all kinds of things, and it's just not working. That vacuum is still there. Well, I want you to know that that vacuum can only be filled by the cross. The cross represents your heritage of the past. It represents your sins forgiven, and that cross represents your hope for the future, and that is a home in eternity with God. Make that decision. Share that decision with us. If you're watching us, you can contact us at the church. Let us know about that decision, and we'll be in contact with you.